Chapter Two, Part Two of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. South: The Story of Shackleton's Last Expedition, 1914 to 1917, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Two, Part Two, New Land. A blizzard from the east northeast prevented us leaving the shelter of the berg on the following day, Sunday, January 17th. The weather was clear, but the gale drove dense clouds of snow off the land and obscured the coastline most of the time. The land, seen when the air is clear, appears higher than we thought it yesterday. Probably it rises to 3,000 feet above the head of the glacier. Cared Coast, as I have named it, connects Coates Land, discovered by Bruce in 1904, with Lutpold Land, discovered by Filchner in 1912. The northern part is similar in character to Coates Land. It is fronted by an undulating barrier, the van of a mighty ice sheet that is being forced outward from the high interior of the Antarctic continent, and apparently is sweeping over low hills, plains, and shallow seas, as the great Arctic ice-sheet once pressed over northern Europe. The barrier surface, seen from the sea, is of a faint golden-brown color. It terminates usually in cliffs ranging from ten to three hundred feet in height, but in a very few places sweeps down level with the sea. The cliffs are of a dazzling whiteness, with wonderful blue shadows. Far inland, higher slopes can be seen, appearing like dim blue or faint golden fleecy clouds. These distant slopes have increased in nearness and clearness as we have come to the southwest, while the barrier cliffs here are higher and apparently firmer. We are now close to the junction with Lutpold Land. At this southern end of the Caird Coast, the ice sheet undulating over the hidden and imprisoned land, is bursting down a steep slope in tremendous glaciers, bristling with ridges and spikes of ice, and seamed by thousands of crevices. Along the whole length of the coast we have seen no bare land or rock. Not as much as a solitary nunatak has appeared to relieve the surface of ice and snow. But the upward sweep of the ice slopes towards the horizon and the ridges Terraces and crevices that appear as the ice approaches the sea tell of the hills and valleys that lie below. The endurance lay under the lee of the stranded berg until 7 a.m. on January 18th. The gale had moderated by that time, and we proceeded under sail to the southwest through a lane that had opened along the glacier front. We skirted the glacier till 9.30 a.m., when it ended in two bays, open to the northwest, but sheltered by stranded bergs to the west. The coast beyond trended south-southwest with a gentle land-slope. The pack now forces us to go west fourteen miles, when we break through a long line of heavy brash mixed with large lumps and growlers. We do this under the fore-topsail only, the engines being stopped to protect the propeller. This takes us into open water, where we make south fifty degrees west for twenty-four miles. Then we again encounter pack, which forces us to the north-west for ten miles, when we are brought up by heavy snow lumps, brash, and large loose flows. The character of the pack shows change. The flows are very thick and are covered by deep snow. 
The brash between the floes is so thick and heavy that we cannot push through without great expenditure of power, and then for a short distance only. We therefore lie to for a while to see if the pack opens at all when this northeast wind ceases. Our position on the morning of the 19th was latitude 76 degrees 34 minutes south, longitude 31 degrees 30 minutes west. The weather was good, but no advance could be made. The ice had closed around the ship during the night, and no water could be seen in any direction from the deck. A few lanes were in sight from the masthead. We sounded in 312 fathoms, finding mud, sand, and pebbles. The land showed faintly to the east. We waited for the conditions to improve, and the scientists took the opportunity to dredge for biological and geological specimens. During the night a moderate northeasterly gale sprang up, and a survey of the position on the 20th showed that the ship was firmly beset. The ice was packed heavily and firmly all round the endurance in every direction as far as the eye could reach from the masthead. There was nothing to be done till the conditions changed, and we waited through that day and the succeeding days with increased anxiety. The east-northeasterly gale that had forced us to take shelter behind the stranded berg on the 16th had veered later to the northeast, and it continued with varying intensity until the 22nd. Apparently this wind had crowded the ice into the bight of the Weddell Sea, and the ship was now drifting southwest with the floes which had enclosed it. A slight movement of the ice round the ship caused the rudder to become dangerously jammed on the 21st, and we had to cut away the ice with ice chisels, heavy pieces of iron with six-foot wooden halves. We kept steam up in readiness for a move if the opportunity offered, and the engines running full speed ahead helped to clear the rudder. Land was in sight to the east and south, about sixteen miles distant on the 22nd. The land ice seemed to be faced with ice cliffs at most points, but here and there slopes ran down to sea level. Large creviced areas in terraces parallel with the coast showed where the ice was moving down over foothills. The inland ice appeared for the most part to be undulating, smooth and easy to march over, but many crevices might have been concealed from us by the surface snow or by the absence of shadows. I thought that the land probably rose to a height of five thousand feet, forty or fifty miles inland. The accurate estimation of heights and distances in the Antarctic is always difficult, owing to the clear air, the confusion monotony of colouring, and the deceptive effect of mirage and refraction. The land appeared to increase in height to the southward, where we saw a line of land or barrier that must have been seventy miles, and possibly was even more distant. Sunday, January 24th, was a clear sunny day, with gentle easterly and southerly breezes. No open water could be seen from the masthead, but there was a slight water sky to the west and northwest. This is the first time for ten days that the wind had varied from northeast and east, and on five of these days it had risen to a gale. Evidently the ice has become firmly packed in this quarter, and we must wait patiently till a southerly gale occurs, or currents open the ice. We are drifting slowly. The position to-day was 76 degrees, 49 minutes south, 
33 degrees, 51 minutes west. Worsley and James, working on the flow with a Q magnometer, found the variation to be 6 degrees west. Just before midnight a crack developed in the ice five yards wide and a mile long, 50 yards ahead of the ship. The crack had widened to a quarter of a mile by 10 a.m. on the 25th, and for three hours we tried to force the ship into this opening, with engines at full speed ahead and all sails set. The sole effect was to wash some ice away astern and clear the rudder, and after convincing myself that the ship was firmly held, I abandoned the attempt. Later in the day, Crean and two of my other men were over the side on a stage chipping at a large piece of ice that had got under the ship, and appeared to be impeding her movement. The ice broke away suddenly, shot up and overturned, pinning Crean between the stage and the haft of the heavy, eleven-foot iron pincer. He was in danger for a few moments, but we got him clear, suffering merely from a few bad bruises. The thick iron bar had been bent against him to an angle of forty-five degrees. The days that followed were uneventful. Moderate breezes from the south and southwest had no apparent effect upon the ice, and the ship remained firmly held. On the twenty-seventh, the tenth day of inactivity, I decided to let the fires out. We had been burning half a ton of coal a day to keep steam in the boilers, and as the bunkers now contained only sixty-seven tons, representing thirty-three days' steaming, we could not afford to continue this expenditure of fuel. Land still showed to the east and south when the horizon was clear. The biologist was securing some interesting specimens with the hand dredge at various depths. A sounding on the 26th gave 360 fathoms, and another on the 29th, 449 fathoms. The drift was to the west, and an observation on the 31st, Sunday, showed that the ship had made eight miles during the week. James and Hudson rigged the wireless in the hope of hearing the monthly message from the Falkland Islands. This message would be due about 3.20 a.m. on the following morning. But James was doubtful about hearing anything with our small apparatus at a distance of 1,630 miles from the dispatching station. We heard nothing, as a matter of fact, and later efforts were similarly unsuccessful. The conditions would have been difficult even for a station of high power. We were accumulating gradually a stock of seal meat during these days of waiting. Fresh meat for the dogs was needed, and seal steaks and liver made a very welcome change from the ship's rations aboard the Endurance. Four crab-eaters and three weddells, over a ton of meat for dog and man, fell to our guns on February 2nd, and all hands were occupied most of the day getting the carcasses back to the ship over the rough ice. We rigged three sledges for man haulage and brought the seals about two miles, the sledging parties being guided among the ridges and pools by semaphore from the crow's nest. Two more seals were sighted on the far side of a big pool, but I did not allow them to be pursued. Some of the ice was in a treacherous condition, with thin films hiding cracks and pools, and I did not wish to risk an accident. A crack about four miles long opened in the flow to the stern of the ship on the third. The narrow lane in front was still open, but the prevailing light breezes did not seem likely to produce any useful movement in the ice. Early on the morning of the fifth, 
a northeasterly gale sprang up, bringing overcast skies and thick snow. Soon the pack was opening and closing without much loosening effect. At noon the ship gave a sudden start and heeled over three degrees. Immediately afterwards a crack ran from the bows to the lead ahead and another to the lead astern. I thought it might be possible to reeve the ship through one of these leads towards open water. But we could see no water through the thick snow, and before steam was raised, and while the view was still obscured, the pack closed again. The northerly gale had given place to light westerly breezes on the sixth. The pack seemed to be more solid than ever. It stretched almost unbroken to the horizon in every direction, and the situation was made worse by very low temperatures in succeeding days. The temperature was down to zero on the night of the seventh, and was two degrees below zero on the eighth. This cold spell in midsummer was most unfortunate from our point of view, since it cemented the pack and tightened the grip of the ice upon the ship. The slow drift to the southwest continued, and we caught occasional glimpses of distant uplands on the eastern horizon. The position on the seventh was latitude seventy six degrees. 57 minutes south, longitude 35 degrees 7 minutes west. Soundings on the 6th and 8th found glacial mud at 630 and 529 fathoms. The endurance was lying in a pool covered by young ice on the ninth. The solid flows had loosened their grip on the ship itself, but they were packed tightly all around. The weather was foggy. We felt a slight northerly swell, coming through the pack, and the movement gave rise to hope that there was open water near to us. At 11 a.m. a long crack developed in the pack, running east and west as far as we could see through the fog, and I ordered steam to be raised in the hope of being able to break away into this lead. The effort failed. We could break the young ice in the pool, but the pack defied us. The attempt was renewed on the 11th, a fine clear day with blue sky. The temperature was still low, two degrees Fahrenheit at midnight. After breaking through some young ice, the endurance became jammed against soft flow. The engines running full speed astern produced no effect until all hands joined in sallying ship. The dog kennels amidship made it necessary for the people to gather aft, where they rushed from side to side in a mass in the confined space around the wheel. This was a ludicrous affair, the men falling over one another amid shouts of laughter, without producing much effect on the ship. She remained fast, while all hands jumped at the word of command, but finally slid off when the men were stamping hard at the double. We were now in a position to take advantage of any opening that might appear. The ice was firm around us, and as there seemed small chance of making a move that day, I had the motor-crawler and warper put out on the floe for a trial run. The motor worked most successfully, running at about six miles an hour over slabs and ridges of ice, hidden by a foot or two of soft snow. The surface was worse than we would expect to face on land or barrier ice. The motor warped itself back on a five-hundred-fathom steel wire and was taking aboard again. From the masthead the mirage is continually giving us false alarms. Everything wears an aspect of unreality. 
icebergs hang upside down in the sky. The land appears as layers of silvery or golden cloud. Cloud banks look like land. Icebergs masquerade as islands or nanataks, and the distant barrier to the south is thrown into view, although it is really outside our range of vision. Worst of all is the deceptive appearance of open water, caused by the refraction of distant water or by the sun shining at an angle on the field of smooth snow or the face of ice-cliffs below the horizon. The second half of February produced no important change in our situation. Early in the morning of the 14th I ordered a good head of steam on the engines and sent all hands on to the floe with ice-chisels, prickers, saws, and picks. We worked all day and throughout most of the next day in a strenuous effort to get the ship into the lead ahead. The men cut away the young ice before the bows and pulled it aside with great energy. After twenty-four hours' labour we had got the ship a third of the way to the lead. But about four hundred yards of heavy ice, including old rafted pack, still separated the endurance from the water, and reluctantly I had to admit that further effort was useless. Every opening we made froze up again quickly owing to the unseasonably low temperature. The young ice was elastic and prevented the ship delivering a strong, splitting blow to the floe while at the same time it held the older ice against any movement. The abandonment of the attack was a great disappointment to all hands. The men had worked long hours without thought of rest, and they deserved success. But the task was beyond our powers. I had not abandoned hope of getting clear, but was counting now on the possibility of having to spend a winter in the inhospitable arms of the pack. The sun, which had been above the horizon, for two months set at midnight on the 17th, and although it would not disappear until April, its slanting rays warned us of the approach of winter. Pools and leads appeared occasionally, but they froze over very quickly. We continued to accumulate a supply of seal-meat and blubber, and the excursions across the floes to shoot and bring in the seals provided welcome exercise for all hands. Three crab-eater cows, shot on the 21st, were not accompanied by a bull, and blood was to be seen about the hole from which they had crawled. We surmised that the bull had become the prey of one of the killer whales. These aggressive creatures were to be seen often in the lanes and pools, and we were always distrustful of their ability or willingness to discriminate between seal and man. A lizard-like head would show while the killer gazed along the floe with wicked eyes. Then the brute would dive to come up a few moments later, perhaps under some unfortunate seal, reposing on the ice. Worsley examined a spot where a killer had smashed a hole eight feet by twelve feet in twelve and a half inches of hard ice, covered by two and a half inches of snow. Big blocks of ice had been tossed onto the floe surface. Wordy, engaged in measuring the thickness of young ice, went through to his waist one day, just as a killer rose to blow in the adjacent lead. His companions pulled him out hurriedly. On the 22nd, the endurance reached the furthest south point of her drift, touching the 77th parallel of latitude, in longitude 35 degrees west. The summer had gone. Indeed, the summer had scarcely been with us at all. 
The temperatures were low day and night, and the pack was freezing solidly around the ship. The thermometer recorded 10 degrees below zero Fahrenheit at 2 a.m. on the 22nd. Some hours earlier we had watched a wonderful golden mist to the southward, where the rays of the declining sun shone through vapor rising from the ice. All normal standards of perspective vanish under such conditions, and the low ridges of the pack, with mist lying between them, gave the illusion of a wilderness of mountain peaks like the Bernese Oberland. I could not doubt now that the endurance was confined for the winter. Gentle breezes from the east, south, and southwest did not disturb the hardening flows. The seals were disappearing, and the birds were leaving us. The land showed still in fair weather on the distant horizon, but it was beyond our reach now, and regrets for havens that lay behind us were vain. We must wait for the spring, which may bring us better fortune. If I had guessed a month ago that the ice would grip us here, I would have established our base at one of the landing-places at the great glacier. But there seemed no reason to anticipate then that the fates would prove unkind. This calm weather with intense cold in a summer month is surely exceptional. My chief anxiety is the drift. Where will the vagrant winds and currents carry the ship during the long winter months that are ahead of us? We will go west, no doubt, but how far? And will it be possible to break out of the pack early in spring and reach Vashel Bay, or some other suitable landing-place? These are momentous questions for us. On February 24th we ceased to observe the ship routine, and the endurance became a winter station. All hands were on duty during the day and slept at night, except a watchman who looked after the dogs and watched for any sign of movement in the ice. We cleared a space of ten feet by twenty feet round the rudder and propeller, sawing through ice two feet thick and lifting the blocks with the pair of tongs made by the carpenter. Crean used the blocks to make an ice-house for the dog, Sally, which had added a litter of pups to the strength of the expedition. Seals appeared occasionally, and we killed all that came within our reach. They represented fuel as well as food for men and dogs. Orders were given for the afterhold to be cleared and the stores checked, so that we might know exactly how we stood for a siege by an Antarctic winter. The dogs went off the ship the following day. Their kennels were placed on the floe along the length of a wire rope to which the leashes were fastened. The dogs seemed heartily glad to leave the ship, and yelped loudly and joyously as they were moved to their new quarters. We had begun the training of teams, and already there was keen rivalry between the drivers. The flat floes and frozen leads in the neighborhood of the ship made excellent training grounds. Hockey and football on the floe were our chief recreations, and all hands joined in many a strenuous game. Worsley took a party to the floe on the 26th and started building a line of igloos and dogloos round the ship. These little buildings were constructed Eskimo fashion of big blocks of ice, with thin sheets for the roofs. Boards or frozen sealskins were placed over all. Snow was piled up on top and pressed into the joints, and then water was thrown over the structures to make everything firm. The ice was packed down flat inside, and covered with snow for the dogs, 
which preferred, however, to sleep outside except when the weather was extraordinarily severe. The tethering of the dogs was a simple matter. The end of a chain was buried about eight inches in the snow. Some fragments of ice were pressed around it, and a little water poured over all. The icy breath of the Antarctic cemented it in a few moments. Four dogs which had been ailing were shot. Some of the dogs were suffering badly from worms. The remedies at our disposal, unfortunately, were not effective. All the fit dogs were being exercised in the sledges, and they took to the work with enthusiasm. Sometimes their eagerness to be off and away produced laughable results, but the drivers learned to be alert. The wireless apparatus was still rigged, but we listened in vain for the Saturday night time signals from New Year Island, ordered for our benefit by the Argentine government. On Sunday, the 28th, Hudson waited at 2 a.m. for the Port Stanley monthly signals, but could hear nothing. Evidently, the distances were too great for our small plant. End of chapter 2, part 2